So if you haven't guessed already, um, I want to talk to you today about this idea of family. Family is an important concept that is essential to the world and to the church. In fact, if we survey everyone in here, maybe even in the world, and if we ask them what are the top three most valuable things to them or the biggest blessings or gifts to them, I imagine that most people, if not all people, would say that family is in their top three. But well, we all have our own ideas of what families are and what they look like and how they're supposed to operate. And so today, we're going to focus on two families. One will be the natural family, also known as the physical family. And then we're going to talk about the spiritual family. Now, keep in mind, the natural family is a critical building block to human society. But the spiritual family is an essential building block to the kingdom of heaven. We will explore some of the connections between the two, but we will also look at some of the distinctions between the two, but it is extremely important to know that the family is important according to the word of God, both in the physical sense and in the theological sense, but one reigns over the other one, and it is important for us to understand which one and why. So keep your Bibles close because we're not going to turn to the feature scripture just yet. I want to talk to you for a few more minutes. Is that okay? Is that okay? In the very beginning of time, the standards of family were set. They were carefully explained and demonstrated. If we look back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, this concept of family, of the natural family, was right there with Adam and Eve. God created Adam and Eve. He performed their wedding, and then he told them to go out and be fruitful, increase in number, and fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, go out and multiply, have lots of babies, and bring this land under cultivation. So in part, God's plan for creation hinged on the success of the family. Because through marriage, man and woman were supposed to become one. As one unified body, they were supposed to populate the earth and through procreation raise those children up in the way that they should go so that they may never depart from it and then they should live happily ever after, right? Right? But we all know that the story of Adam and Eve took a turn and the plot figures. Now, most of you know the story of Adam and Eve, so I'm going to spare us from hearing all of the details again. But in short, Adam and Eve messed up. They got kicked out of the Garden of Eden. They got pushed into the world. And because they were pushed into the world, you and I lost access to that paradise. And so here we are today in Charlestown. And don't get me wrong, I love Charlestown. I went to high school here. I came back every summer and I worked the community, uh, the, the camps and things like that for the kids here every single summer for years. But the idea of paradise sounds a little more appealing to me. But fortunately for us, even though Adam and Eve messed up, God did not give up on his concept of Family. You see, Adam and Eve had children, and we quickly learned through Cain and Abel that we were supposed to be our brother's keeper, our sister's keeper, to love and to protect and to guide each other, provide for each other if necessary. That's what it was supposed to be, right? Right? But of course, the story of Cain and Abel took a turn in the Pythagians. The scripture tells us that these brothers made sacrifices to God. But God favored Abel's sacrifice over Cain's sacrifice, and Cain got jealous, and he killed his brother. And as a result, God punished Cain by condemning him to a life of wandering. Both these stories, the Adam and Eve story, the Cain and Abel story, happened thousands of years ago, and yet here we are today still trying to figure this family thing out. While some of us have family members that we cannot live without, far too many of us have family members that we can't live with. In fact, if... Some family members came through this floor right now. Some of us have family members we wouldn't even speak to if they stood right next to you. That is what the family has become. And so we, don't, we need to rethink this idea of what the family is. The scripture tells us that, that the brothers and sisters to God, God, right, 
God being the one over all of us, God being the Father to us, he is going to lead our way if we trust in him. So now we're thinking about what it means to have a family. There's this idea, this idea that we have in our heads that may not correlate with the scriptures. So my hope today is when it's all said and done, you will have an idea for what you think family is, but also what the scripture tells us family is supposed to be. Adam and Eve dropped the ball. Cain and Abel became a tragedy, so the world became corrupt and filled with violence in God's sight. And so God got fed up and said, you know what? I'm about to destroy everything and everybody. I'm going to bring a flood of waters on this earth. I'm going to destroy all the flesh, which is the breath under, I'm sorry, the breath of life under heaven. And God decided everything must die, but not before I safeguard the family. He chose this brother named Noah. You know, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. God told Noah to go and build this big old boat, this, this ship, this oversized wooden box, and call it the ark. God said, we're going to make it 50 cubits wide and 30 cubits high. And then God told Noah, eventually we're going to stop this bad boy with animals of every kind. But first, but first, Genesis 6:18, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark. You your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Clearly, the Lord had a plan for the family. You see, the health of the family was so important to God that it was codified in covenants. There was the unwritten covenant with Adam and Eve. There was the covenant with Noah, Moses, Abraham, and David, just to mention a few. But here's what we ought to know. All of those covenants were designed ultimately to protect God's family, that is, his people. Even if we look at the Ten Commandments, we have two of those commandments that offer the family imminent protection. Exodus 20.12 says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that your Lord, the Lord, your God, is giving you. So this commandment was designed to preserve and protect the authority of the parents and the family. Yes, parents, you are supposed to be the boss. I don't know what happened along the way, but some things have changed in our family dynamics. My mama said, do this, I did that. If my granddaddy said, boy, do this, it was done. But today, some of us have to ask our children for permission to touch their cell phones or to enter their room or to even meet their friends. Don't feel bad. You're not the only one. If you think I'm talking to you, it is crazy, but it is true. In the second commandment, Exodus 20, 14, it says, you shall not commit adultery. Do not cheat on your spouse. Here's what you need to know. God didn't say, don't cheat on your spouse because he was thinking about our feelings. No, he was protecting the sacredness of marriage, which is a pillar to the family, which is essential to human society. Some of us know all too well what divorce and separation can do and has done to the family. Now, there are so many examples that the scripture gives us to help us draw some conclusions about this concept of family. And if we wanted to, we can continue to talk about how Abraham and his family were called out of Iran, how Ruth refused to leave Naomi, even though Naomi had already uh, sort of told her daughter-in-law that they are free from any family responsibilities. We can talk about that hard-headed son that dissed his daddy, went out into the world with all that money, and when he was dead, broken, hungry, he came straggling back home with his tail between his legs, and what was there? A loving father with open arms. To me, that sounds like family. Now, there isn't a shortage in the scripture, at least the Old Testament, that speaks about the conceptions, the 
perceptions or the implications of the physical family, but then Jesus comes through in, in a way that only he can, and he just really disrupts all of our thinking because he teaches us about a different kind of family. He teaches us about a family that is not defined by its genealogy, that is not easily detected by its last name or scientifically traced through its lineage. In fact, Jesus teaches us about family members that are connected, not because they share the same water of the same womb, or not because they come from the same ancestral bloodline, but because they are connected by the blood of the covenant. If you're still with me, say amen. Okay, great. Now you can join me in your Bibles. If you don't have your Bibles, that's okay. I think the scripture will be projected above. Uh, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 3, where I'll be reading for your hearing verses 31 through 35. That's the book of Mark. Chapter 3, verses 31 through 35. And the Bible says, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, up to this point in the story, Jesus was out and about alternating between taking his disciples to private and secluded spaces just to teach them and being about the people and preaching to them and also healing them. Some of you might know that the book of Mark records about 15 different miracles, three of which aren't even mentioned in the other three Gospels. Midway through the third chapter of the book of Mark, Jesus had already cast out the demon that was occupying the man. He had already relieved the lady of her fever. He had already healed a number of people with uh, various illnesses and diseases, and he even cured the men with leprosy, paralysis, and the withered hand. The word began to quickly travel throughout um, areas of Capernaum and parts of Galilee and Judea and, and Nazareth. And it was said that they folks believed that Jesus' family was in Nazareth at the time when they started catching wind and hearing stories about what Jesus was up to. And now, we all know how stories can develop into rumors. You see, we had the believers and the followers of Jesus over here. We had the doubters and the non-believers over here. And then we had the scribes somewhere promoting their own ideas about who Jesus was and what Jesus was doing. And so it's easy to see how gossip and rumors or false narratives can make their way back to Mary. Jesus' mother. Now some of you might be wondering, why would Mary even care? Doesn't she know her son is the Messiah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She knows her son is the Messiah, but she is still a mother, and Jesus is still her son, and so the Messiah identity didn't resonate with her in that moment, because in that moment, she was thinking about her baby. Now LeBron James's mother knows, without a doubt, that he is easily one of the greatest basketball players to ever live. But if something goes wrong in his life, she is thinking about running her baby. She's not thinking about King James of the Lakers. And so naturally, Mary went to her other son. She said, listen, pack up a few bags. We're going to get my baby. And so they made their, their way out. They went looking for Jesus. And they finally arrived at the place where he was going. But I'm not necessarily sure what they heard. But as they were going to look for Jesus, they said, we got to bring him home because he's going crazy. He's out of his mind. Now, I didn't make that up. That's right there in the scripture, just a few verses before, Mark 3, 21. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Now perhaps calling someone out of their mind back then meant something differently, but today if you call someone out of their mind, you're telling them that they are crazy. 
And so eventually Mary and her sons went out and they arrived at the location where Jesus was preaching. But it was ridiculously crowded, so crowded that they could not get to him. And just because they were members of his natural family does not make them VIP. And so they sent someone to Jesus. I wasn't there, but I'm just imagining, hey, Brother Howard, tell Jesus his mom and them looking for him. So Howard turns around, hey, Paul, tell Jesus his mother and them looking for him. Right? And that goes on. Somebody, so on. Hey, Jesus, just so you know, man, your mom and them outside. Look at him. <laughs> and this is the moment, y'all. This is the moment when Jesus looks around for a second and then he responds, who? Who? My mother. Who are my mother? They're my brothers. And then he's looking out at the crowd and he says, well, whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Now, I don't care who you are or how thick you think your skin is or how well you think you prepared to hear something like that. But if you hear something like that coming from your brother or your child without proper context, it is undoubtedly going to be a blow to your heart without proper context. It is going to break you down. Just think about that, brothers and sisters. What if it was your child or your brother that said that to you? I don't know what I would have done, but I can say that I could have been sad enough to walk away crying, or I can say that I could have been hurt enough that I may have said something foolish like, well, forget you too, Jeff. Or I could have been angry enough to pick up a stick or a rock. I don't know what I would have done, but I do know that the words would have hurt me. And if we can be honest with ourselves, most of us have dealt with some, if not all, of these feelings or these internal thoughts uh, at some point in our lives, especially when we are dealing with family. I can vividly remember when I was about 13 years old, I was in a disagreement with my stepfather. And in the heat of the moment, bye, he gave me a good one. Seconds later, I could hear, even feel the heaviness of my mother's Footsteps tramping through the trailer towards us, and I can remember thinking to myself, finally she is about to check this fool. <laughs> and when she got there, she looked at me for a second, then she looked at him for a second, then she looked back at me, she stood in front of him and put her hands out like this, as if to protect him. And she said to me, a 13-year-old son, look, my man comes before everybody, including my children and my mom, you deal with it or you get out. I was 13 years old at the time. Now, without proper context, that was a death blow. It destroyed everything I understood about the construct of family. It destroyed everything I believed in the mother and son's relationship. It took me most of my life, even into my adult years, unpacking that scenario over and over and over again. I couldn't make a connection to her words because I didn't have context. And now that I'm older and I have a family of my own, wife and children of my own, I've gained a different perspective for family. In fact, if someone said to me today that my husband or my wife comes before my kids and even my mother, it would make perfect sense to me. Now, I know that some of you are going to really struggle with that, that concept. But here's what you need to know. You cannot be married and constantly put your children or your mother over your spouse. Why? Because one day your children are going to grow up and find a spouse of their own, as they should, and I promise you, you will no longer be number one in their lives. One day your children are going to grow up and leave the nest as they should, and now they're going to have to tend to their own home business. But now that they're out of your house, you're now stuck with the emotions and the behaviors of someone that you have been putting last for the past 18 years. What do you think you can expect from them then? So I say to you, if that's your scenario right now, good luck, and some things need to change. 
But Jesus said, well, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So before we call the cancer culture cavaliers on Jesus, we have to try to explore the context of his statement. Jesus is in no way saying that the physical family or the biological family isn't important. That fact had already been established in the scripture. What he did do is make a clear distinction between the family of the world and the family of the kingdom of heaven. He needed us to know and understand that the most important family connection is not physical, but it is spiritual. Thus the saying for whoever does the will of God is my brother, sister, and mother. Now we in the world tend to put a lot of credence or give a lot of credence to the natural family, and we shouldn't. The natural family is extremely important. It's a building block for the human society. In fact, the family is part of why we are who we are, right? If I said to you, Brother Mbutu, you know exactly what I mean. I am because we are. That's our understanding of family. In fact, I love when I say or hear the phrase, the walk of boys. It makes me feel good. I love the idea that my wife and my children have pride in their family name. At least I think they do. But in this story, Jesus highlights a different type of family. Most of you know this already, but we have all types of family structures out there today, right? One, we have the nuclear family. And by definition, the nuclear family, also known as the traditional family, is the family type that consists of two parents and children in one household. But here is a disappointing fact. Only 22% of the families in America live in a nuclear family unit. But we also have the extended family. And by definition, that is the, the structure that consists of two or more adults who are related, either by blood or marriage. So this could include cousins, uncles, aunts, grandparents, etc. But the ticket is, they have to live in the same house. Now, I'm willing to bet that none of us follow that rule, at least I don't. I call every family member outside of my house extended family. But we also have the blended family, which involves two separate families merging into one new unit. It consists of a new spouse and their children from a previous marriage or relationship coming together under one roof. Now, given the fact that more than half of the marriages end in divorce, the blended family is equally common, if not more common, than the nuclear family in America. And we also have the adoptive family, right? This is when a family that uh, has welcomed a child that was born into another family into their family and legally adopt that child as their own. Now, this is not an exhaustive list of family structures, brothers and sisters. I'm only highlighting these types of structures so that I can shed light on the fact that by the grace of God, the natural family that you were born into, married into, or adopted into does not have to be your only family. Jesus teaches us about a new family structure, the spiritual family structure, one that you are not naturally born into, but you are spiritually reborn into, one that is not connected by race or ethnicity or by name, but as it's explained in John 1, 12, uh, 12 to 13, to all who did receive him who believe in his name, that's the name of Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So what does that even mean? We have been extended this gift of the spirit of adoption, which means through the Holy Spirit, God not only adopts us into his eternal family, but he invites us to address him as father. Even better, God goes on to explain that he wants to treat his people as sons and daughters. In the second, in second Corinthians 6, 18, God says, I will be a father to you. You shall be sons and daughters to me. In other words, we shall be a family. Let me ask you this. If you could choose a family to be adopted into today, 
Which family would you choose and why? Watch this demonstration. Now, I'm going to give you five seconds to think about that. If you could choose a family to be adopted into today, which family would it be? I'm going to give you five seconds to think about that. Five, four, three, two, one. Now, by show of hands, how many of you thought of a family? A couple folks? A couple folks? Okay. Good. Good. Thank you. Most of us could think of a family to be adopted into within five seconds, which really speaks to our desires of our hearts. Now, don't feel bad. It's normal. All of us are like that. Some of us probably would choose a family based on their celebrity or their fame. Others probably had chosen a family based on the legacy of their name. If I said to you, Brother Howard, I come from the Bush family, what comes to mind? Presidential family. I'm somehow related to the George Bushes of this world. But here we are, sitting in the middle of a sermon about the eternal family, and I'm willing to bet that not a quarter of us thought about being adopted into the family of heaven. And look, I'm telling you, don't feel bad. I'm in the same boat. I came up with the question. And while I was writing the question down, I was having envious thoughts. The first family I thought about was the Walmart family. I don't, I don't know their last name. Um, I don't know much about the Walmart families, to be honest with you, other than the fact that they are probably one of the wealthiest families in the country, if not in the world. And that is not what caught my attention. The truth be told, I just would love to have a lifetime of free access to Super Walmart. Come on now, if I'm not alone, somebody say amen. Amen. But in Mark 3, 31 through 35, Jesus is teaching us about a new family dynamic. I repeat, he is not suggesting that the physical family is unimportant, but he's showing us that we cannot put our physical family over our spiritual family. And a question I would encourage you to ask yourselves is why would you want to put the physical family over the spiritual family? The way I understand it is the physical family will surely die. We forgot. Yes, we'll go to the funeral, we'll do whatever, and friends will forget us, colleagues will forget us. The physical family will surely die, but the spiritual family is eternal. It is forever. It is always. The physical family is led by the will of man, and we all know all too well how shaky man can be. One minute he is hot, the next minute he is cold. One minute he is young, the next minute he is old. One minute he is healthy. The next minute he is sick, one minute he is happy, the next minute he is mad. But the spiritual family is led by the will of God, not by the will of man. It is characterized by constant love and constant forgiveness, constant grace and constant mercy. There is security in the consistency of Jesus. The physical family is bound to earth. The physical family, I'm sorry, the spiritual family has a home in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, but I want to experience just a little piece of what Adam and Eve had in the very beginning. But there's a few things that we ought to know about our adoption into this family of God. And so for the next couple of minutes, I really just want to talk to you and leave you with a few tidbits to chew on as you leave the sanctuary today. Some of these concepts might be difficult for some of us to realize initially, but I assure you that it's all backed up and supported by the word of God. And so my first point simply says this. In the physical family, we live for the family, but in the spiritual family, we live for God. In the physical family, everything that we do is for the spouse and for the kids. Back at home, we say it's for the crib. We wreck the family name. We aim to bring joy and happiness into the home. Most of us want to admit this, but most of us have this 
boastful pride in how we represent the physical family. And if we wanted to, we could make that really easy for ourselves because we get to set the standard, we get to set the rules in our families and in our homes. But in the spiritual family, we're living for God. And it very much matters how you live. You don't get to set the rules. The rules are preset and they are established in the Word of God. They are determined by the Word of God and they are carried out with the common will, which is, of course, the will of God. And so it is important for us to understand the difference in living for the family and living for God. Point two, the physical family is made up and mixed up of all kinds of criteria. Some of us are connected by blood, others connected by marriage, some of us are connected through adoption with legalized papers, and others are connected through adoption of love. All of which beautiful things. But let us be reminded that the spiritual family is connected in the spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it tells us that one, I'm sorry, for in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. In other words, although we are individual members navigating this world with unique experiences, unique histories and stories, unique identities, once we come to Christ, we all share in the communion of the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that dwells in the heart of one believer dwells in the heart of all other believers. Jesus loves one believer just like he loves all other believers. So in this family, if you cannot look your brothers and sisters in the Lord in the eyes and see past their race or see past their ethnicity or their class or their education level, then it is likely that your heart does not wholeheartedly belong to Jesus. Because we are connected by the common will of God. Jesus said, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. We believe in one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So in short, we must understand that our connection is supposed to be spiritual. I have found that many of my brothers and sisters in the Lord are quick to elevate the fact that we are believers, but we tend to overlook the mandate of love, which brings me to my next and final point. Point three simply says that the world has had the freedom to characterize its own family structures and dynamics. But in the spiritual family, it is characterized by the love of Jesus. A friend of mine made a post on Facebook not too long ago, and he said, I'm paraphrasing him just a little bit, he said the world would be much better if we loved each other the way we love Jesus. Now this is a strong and positive intended message, which was hard for me to interject, but I had to because the Spirit almost made me. So I responded to my brother and I said, listen, the reason we are in the shape that we are in is because we love each other the way we love Jesus. Man's love is too finicky. We love Jesus passionately, then our love for him becomes lukewarm. We trust him one day, and then when we get sick or when we lose a job, we begin to doubt his existence. We are faithful to him as long as the blessings are formed, but when we lose a loved one, we become unfaithful. If the pastor of a church does something wrong, we somehow make it Jesus' fault, and so we leave the church, and then we become atheists. And that's why, brothers and sisters, I say to you, I don't want you to love me like we far too often love him. During the Last Supper, God gave, Jesus gave the disciples a new commandment, and he said to them, I want you to love one another as he has loved us. Now, that's what we need. We need to love each other as he has loved us. Us, to love each other like he has loved us. What does that mean? We sin, 
he forgives us. We lose sight, he redirects us. We lose hope, we lose faith, he still loves us. We leave him, he invites us back with open arms. The spiritual family is characterized by agape love. Now, we've all spoken about agape love in the end, so just consider this a recap. Uh, by definition, agape love is sacrificial love that voluntarily suffers inconvenience, discomfort, and even death for the benefit of another without expecting anything in return. So we, the children of God, are called to agape love through the example set by Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2, it says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Believers are spiritual brothers and sisters in the Lord and because we are the children of one Father. Our faith deepens with fellowship. Our love for each other, our connection to each other. It's not about pointing the finger at other people and saying, I'm better than you or you are beneath us. But our belief in, in God and our connection and our family structure and dynamic is designed to move the will of God forward. And so church, as we continue to grow and, and go through these changes as a community, I encourage us to ask ourselves, what would it look like if we fully embraced our brothers and sisters in the Lord and then took that love out into the community. What a powerful and positive impact might we have right here in Charlestown, and then greater Boston, and then New England, and if God willing, the rest of the world. Now I know that that is a tall order uh, for us to think about for such a small church that is growing, but we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, those folks, are us. And I just call us to love each other as brothers and sisters in the Lord to elevate our connection, our spiritual connection. Because if you can't call me family, then that's another conversation to have another day. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that the word that was put forth this morning really resonates with all who are under the sound of my voice. I pray, Heavenly Father, that they can receive it with open mind and open hearts. In fact, we pray that you open the eyes of their hearts so that they might see you. I know that they can see Brother Walker right now and they hear me, but I'm hoping that they see you and that they can hear you in that message. Lord, I hope that it is a powerful, positive impact on who they are, on who we are as a church. I want us to grow as a church and to see each other and to love each other as brothers and sisters in the Lord. I pray, Heavenly Father, that we all have entryway into the kingdom of heaven. But we can only do these things with you, through you, and by you. And so we ask all of these things, Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus. We love you. We honor you. We magnify your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.